Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Dr. Andreas Krieg. He's a lecturer at the School of Security Studies at King's College London and at the Royal College of Defence Studies. Andreas edited Divided Gulf, The Anatomy of a Crisis, published by Palgrave in 2019. Our conversation today focuses on the UAE and its relations with Israel, Qatar, and China. Andreas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. I want to begin with, of course, the ongoing situation in the Israel-Palestine conflict. Uh, the Times of Israel reported recently that an unnamed Emirati official had threatened Hamas with, retro- with uh, withdrawal of financial support for projects that are desperately needed, water, electricity, that sort of thing. If that report is correct, what does it tell us about Abu Dhabi, their relations with the Israelis, and, and what they think about the Palestinians? Right. I mean, this is um, obviously now is all coming out in the open uh, because people are looking after the Abrams Accord, particularly at the UAE and how they react to the violence in in Palestine. But this is nothing new. I mean, if you look at the last um, 15 years or so since MBZ, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, the crown prince, is really in charge in Abu Dhabi, the elite level disengagement and apathy to the Palestinian cause is kind of uh, very, um, you know, very, very obvious. I've, you know, many, many people I've spoken to who work for the UN in, in Palestine who had meetings with the Emiratis, including with MBZ, uh, confirmed to me that MBZ has no real regard and concern for the Palestinian cause. And so this kind of level of apathy on the elite level is, is, is nothing new and has, has gone on for a long time. Um, and now we've got the Abraham Accords in place. Um, and it's kind of very obvious that the geostrategic gains that um, the Emiratis have from the Abrams Accord are, are outweighing um, any benefits they might have from engaging with the Palestinian cause. And everything that we've seen from the Emiratis at the moment has been, um, you know, half-hearted. They were the last ones uh, from the Gulf to actually make a declaration and actually put pressure on Israel, uh, if you will, on on um, on on getting a ceasefire going, while we had um, all the other GCC countries going before them. Um, at the same time, we had a, a range of different uh, social media activists who work for the Emirati government, making, um, you know, taking on some of the narratives and talking points from the Israelis. Um, again, with the with the authority of the Emirati government, with the authority of Abu Dhabi. So I think the Palestinian cause it hasn't really uh, played a, a very uh, very important role in in Emirati politics, and you know the narrative that the Emiratis have vis-a-vis Palestine is always that on the one hand you've got a terrorist organization which is for them is Hamas and on the other hand you've got the Palestinian Authority who is a very corrupt organization that is unable to actually govern unable to provide um, people in the West Bank with public goods and that kind of for them delegitimizes the entire Palestinian cause what they do not talk about and never think about is that they're actually more than four million Palestinians living under Israeli occupation or in Gaza and you know their plight and their suffering uh, has nothing to do with their leaderships, and uh, I think there is there, there is no genuine concern there. And the pressure amid all that violence to say we're actually going to put leverage, uh, use our leverage, if uh, limited leverage uh, over Gaza and and Hamas, is kind of showing, it kind of telling. You know, it's it's uh, quite remarkable that they're not using that leverage against Israel. Yes, and as you say, it's uh, it's one thing that delegitimized the the governments, uh, Hamas and 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 the Palestinian Authority, but but. The action delegitimizes millions of Palestinians and leaves them to the mercies of the Israelis. Absolutely, and uh, and I think that is something that the Emiratis are willing to accept. 
What I do think, though, is that the both Bibi Netanyahu and the Emiratis have underestimated how much this this uh, outbreak of violence, to what extent this was that would actually mobilize people inside of Israel as well as in the West Bank and and, and globally. And uh, I think the uh, we've always seen quite a lot of outrage about these wars in Gaza, 2014, 20, 2009. Um, but what we see now is that this is an entirely new information environment. And I think also the Emiratis now have to manage um, domestic opinion at home. And yes, of course, the UAE are a, a very much an authoritarian police state that have very rigid controls over what can and cannot be said in the public space. Um, but it's quite obvious that most Emiratis disagree uh, with the normalization and are definitely not tolerating the sort of violence that we see from Israel at the moment. So there is a bit of uh, management going on here where the where the Emiratis are trying to make sure that the, the, the street at home is not becoming too polarized against the normalization with Israel, while the government firmly believes that the normalization and the Abram Accords will be highly beneficial for, for the UAE in terms of their own interests. And uh, and I think that's something that the Emiratis will have to manage, as especially the Arab street in the Arab world seems to getting uh, seems to be getting mobilized quite a lot. Yeah, I think you're, you're, you're quite right that there is this significant disconnect between the government's attitudes and the attitudes on the street. And I'm interested to hear you say that that's playing out, you know, within the United Arab Emirates, which, as you say, is a police state coming down very, very hard on policing social media. But you're picking up that there is this uh, trend, which is reflected elsewhere, that uh, people, ordinary Emiratis, are with the Palestinians. Yes, and and. and I think uh, you know most analysts have already said while the during the signing of the Abrams Accord, uh, most Western commentaries were saying you know the, the the Palestinian cause is dead and nobody's caring about the Palestinian cause. And I think what we see over the last two weeks is the is quite the opposite. And I think the same is true for the UAE. And you know as you as you rightly said, these kind of debates and discussions about Palestine in in the UAE at the moment are not being held in the public space. They're not being held on social media. They're not being held uh, through protests as we see in other Gulf countries. They're being held in the in the private space in the majlis. Um, but you can see some, you know, there are increasing numbers of Emiratis that I know who might not be living in the UAE but are Emirati citizens. Um, who take a very strong stance for Palestine and kind of, uh, you know, oppose indirectly what the government is doing. But obviously they have to tread very lightly. And as you say, it's, it's quite a huge risk, even if you live abroad, to uh, speak out uh, and criticize the government because you might end up in, in jail, as we've seen uh, happening to a variety of different activists in the country. Mm. And meanwhile, the Israelis have allowed Qatar to send funds to the Hamas government to pay public sector salaries. I wonder to what extent the Israelis are kind of exploiting the splits between the Gulf states. You know, as you pointed out, Qatar and the UAE are not best of buddies. How are the Israelis playing this one? It seems like they're managing it quite effectively. Yeah, and these are two different things for the Israelis. And that's the whole problem of the entire conflict, in my point of view. The, the, the huge problem is that the Israelis don't see the occupation as well as the maltreatment and the alienation of Palestinians, the, the apartheid state that is being gradually being built over the last uh, decade or so. Um, they don't see this as the root cause of violence and the root cause of, of Hamas's activities and the rocket fire coming into Israel. They see the Hamas problem as an operational issue. They see a mobilization of Palestinians as an operational problem, something that the police and the law enforcement and the military can deal with, but doesn't need a political response. 
and 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 that's part of the problem because the, it's comp- there's an entire disconnect between how the military, how the security sector in Israel is trying to deal with the violence, and uh, and obviously the lack of attention that the political elites in Israel give that problem. So if you then look at the Gulf, uh, we see that the relationship between Israel and the UAE is a is a strategic one. It's a political one. It's based on on idea ideological synergies. It's based on a common worldview of uh, how the region works, and also a common vision for how the world is how the region is supposed to develop into the future. Then when you look at Qatar, the relationship between Qatar and Israel is an operational one. It's actually not from the, on the politi- between the political levels. It's between the ambassador of Qatar to the Palestinian Authority, Mr. Mahdi, and his, and, um, and and Palestine, uh, and Israeli operational leaders, uh, mostly those in charge of the occupation and those in charge, uh, commanders who are in charge of dealing with Gaza. So Netanyahu and the political elites in Jerusalem have really no no rela- no real link into that relationship. And so Qatar is helping in, in many ways alleviate the pain and suffering of, of Palestinians in Gaza on the ground and that's something that helps the Israelis so they're very happy and pragmatic to say let's at least someone is doing this plus the countries have relationships to Hamas that they can use um, to kind of calm tensions and, and, and mediate ceasefires so again that helps the Israelis because the Israelis don't have that sort of direct contact with, with Hamas and uh, at least not at the moment and, um, and meanwhile they have this strategic relationship with the UAE where they're where they're trying to where they're building relationships actively in um, to to deal together with the issue of Iran so this is a very strategic issue in Israel in Israel um, dealing even you know providing the the Emirates are providing the Israelis with access to the Indian Ocean with access to very important uh, intelligence hubs um, there's a lot of sharing of information technology intelligence technology cyber technology technology, AI technology, um, these are all strategic developments moving forward for both countries and it's a win-win. The Emiratis bring the money, the Israelis bring the technology um, and, and, and again there is a, a, a high level, political level embracement of, of that sort of relationship um, which doesn't exist obviously between Israel and Qatar. So no regrets then for MBZ uh, with the normalization deal? I don't think so. I don't think MBZ and the political elites around him, um, basically his, his immediate family, um, the Al Nahyan of Abu Dhabi, I don't think have any um, any uh, regrets when it comes to uh, signing that deal. And let's not forget the Abrams Accord, our formalization of a relationship that has existed for over a decade. The integration on or, you know on, on very strategic issues when it comes to intelligence, information technology, and so on between Israelis. And uh, Emiratis has has existed for uh, at least since the beginning of the Arab Spring, and um, they, th- this relationship has deepened. There, but there was never a formal label on it, uh, and it was always somewhat under the table. So um, you know, the, signing this piece of paper is just formalizing a relationship that already existed, and that relationship is of strategic nature, and it's something that for MBZ has more benefits than costs. So he can sit out that storm at the moment um, and still reave and uh, harvest the benefits of that relationship uh, for many, many years and decades to come. Mm. Now, the Al-Ula Accord was signed in January, supposed to return the GCC to the status of one big, happy, united family, um, in reality papered over the cracks. And, and of course, the biggest crack is the relationship between Abu Dhabi and Doha. I mean, how serious you know, are the tensions there? And, and does the current situation, Palestine-Israel, contribute to further tensions? I don't think it, it contributes to further tensions. It's quite obvious that there there is an 100, again, as you say, that the shift is between Doha and Abu Dhabi. And if you look at the response from Abu Dhabi and Doha towards the crisis in Palestine, 
you know, they, they couldn't be more diametrically opposed. And, every, and, and that kind of goes for everything that Abu Dhabi and Doha are doing in the region. Um, I, you know, I, I wrote in my book um, on, on, you know, the, 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 um, the divided gulf. I, I was talking about this to be a war over a narratives, uh, a war over um, ideational concepts and, and visions for the region. And, and I think this is a split that obviously is not that you can't really, uh, you know, do away with by, by, by signing an agreement or talking to one another. So it's not a this conflict between Abu Dhabi and Doha is not one that is based on um, on on interests. It's not one based on on geostrategic uh, um, issues. It's one that's based on ideology. And it's it's really the root cause of this or the root of that is really uh, of that conflict is really in the Arab Spring, where both countries started together in Libya and then realized it realized quickly that they stood on two opposite sides of this huge development that 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 is still or has massively changed in the, the outlook of the Arab world. So what you have there is, uh, on the one hand, is Qatar. Qatar was very much a, a revolutionary uh, force, has been very happy to uh, support um, revolutionary movements. Has you know Al Jazeera has been really bringing the voice to the voiceless, helping the cause of mobilization, help mobilizing revolutionaries. Later on, Qatar was uh, very happy to support financially and with through military aid a range of militia groups. Um, and engaged with a variety of different actors, of which some and many were Islamists. Um, and uh, in, in, in what for the for, which was for the Qataris a kind of a, a crusade against authoritarianism. And for the Emiratis, the first three years of the Arab Spring, the Emiratis were very timid, very quiet, very silent. Were looking on uh, to these developments with quite a lot of fear, um, and saw the the mobilization that happened on the Arab Street as a massive threat to regime security, which the Qataris did not. Um, has to do with the fact that Qatar is a, a, a smaller country, more robust country, doesn't have the same fault lines that the UAE uh, present. Um, it's a, obviously a very rich country, the Qatar, where, where wealth is distributed fairly evenly. While in the UAE, wealth is kind of uh, distributed unfairly in the southern Emirates, where, whereas the northern Emirates still have a lot of grievances. And many of those people in the northern Emirates could identify with the grievances of that were expressed in other countries. So the, the fear of mobilization in Abu Dhabi meant that the Arab Spring was a, an existential threat to regime security. And that's how they framed it. And their approach to it was one of containment. They were, th they were looking for means and ways to contain the spread of civil society and the collapse of the old authoritarian order in the in the in the Arab world. So while the Qataris were working against authoritarianism, um, the Emiratis were trying to re-establish an old authoritarian order, going back to what they call authoritarian stability. Um, and they had a moment in 2013 when that was possible to do, and that moment was Egypt. So in early 2013, you had a small group of liberals uh, in Egypt calling um, against, calling out against the the Muslim Brotherhood uh, uh, President Morsi saying that they were corrupt and they're not actually getting anything done. Um, they, they were called the Tamarud. And the Tamarud uh, uh, organization was really then built up strategically by the Emiratis through funding, uh, you know, through coverage in media networks that, that, that they are affiliated with and building it up and giving it momentum to kind of have then in, in the summer, in June 2013, this momentum of more than a million and a half and even more people on the street protesting against the Muslim Brotherhood, which was a pretext that then the military could exploit. And there was collusion going on between the UAE and um, Egyptian security service to make this happen. And that was the start of a massive counter-revolution that has been going on ever since. Uh, uh, while the countries were retreating in 2014 from Syria, from Libya and other engagements, 
the Emiratis got involved and have been and stayed involved ever since. And um, so while the, for me this is a, a, a gap or a, um, a confrontation between a revolutionary approach and a counter-revolutionary approach. And the Emiratis have, and it, for the Emiratis, and that's always misunderstood, it's not always about political Islam, it's about civil societal activism. It's about the mobilization of the street that could potentially uh, become a wave that can that can uh, topple regimes. And that is something that they're trying to contain. And here, I think the Emiratis have a very, very uh, strategic alignment with the Israelis, because also the Israelis, when you look at their narratives during the Arab Spring, their narrative was very, very similar. The Israelis fear uh, democratically elected regimes, or sorry, de democratically elected governments in the Arab world, because they feel they would be anti-Israel and would be more responsive to uh, you know, the cause of Palestine, because that's what people care about in the Arab world. Um, and the Emiratis are, are backing this up. They also, like the Israelis, look at the Arab Spring as essentially something that, that would be irrational, that would bring about governments that are irrational, that are difficult to deal with. Uh, and they rather, like the Israelis, would deal with authoritarian leaders that are, at, 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 at the worst, you know, ambiguous about their relationship uh, with Israel. And um, so that, that's kind of, this divide is, is obviously not something that the Al-Ula summit brought to an end. And it will continue, and it does continue. And I think it will be a continuous problem for actually bringing about a united uh, Gulf front. Yes, and that's interesting, as you say, the, the counter-revolutionary strategy of the Emiratis versus the support for revolution uh, by the Qataris. Of course, Qatar is in, in and of itself not in support of revolutionary change within within that small state. But... You know, if you look at the situation, and I'm thinking about the way the, the Emiratis have played Sudan or their engagement in Yemen, I mean, they seem to be winning this particular struggle. They seem to have the upper hand in this uh, counter-revolutionary versus revolutionary narrative. True. Uh, like I said, it has a lot to do with the fact that those um, who were who were in getting involved on the side of the revolutionaries in 2010, uh, not just Qatar, but also Turkey, have um, punched above their weight, especially Qatar, have realized that, you know, not only did they make a lot of mistakes, but they just didn't have the strategic depth to keep this going, and they have retreated. And so there's no one at the moment who re realistically uh, confronts the UAE's, obviously, um, very aggressive, very assertive strategy in the region. Um, you, you mentioned Sudan, but it's also Somalia, it's Yemen, uh, it's Libya, it's Syria as well, where the Emiratis are are backing now the the Assad regime, and in many ways, uh, while you know the the countries have had their own strategy, they would always be responsive to pressure and engagement from the West. That's not the case with the UAE. The UAE has become that and a very assertive small state that it some sometimes shows the Americans the cold shoulder and says, you know, uh, this is what we're doing because that serves our national interest. Uh, and you need to get on with it. And that sort of that sort of um, um, self-confidence uh, we haven't seen from any other Gulf states, including the Saudis, because even the Saudis, when pressure is being put upon them from America, they usually uh, turn around and try to mend this. Um, that's not the case with the Emiratis. And that has also to do with the fact that the Emiratis have built networks, not just in, uh, through Western integration, but have built quite a lot of networks in China, India, um, and has have become a very indispensable factor in, in, in this part of the world. So even for the, for China's 
One Road, One Belt initiative, the UAE play a very, very important role uh, and they're an integral part of it. And the Chinese see the Emiratis and approach the Emiratis more on par than the Americans do. The West and the Americans are looking at the Gulf countries as their client states for most, for most of it. Uh, and that, it, that you can, that's reflective in their engagement. The Chinese engage the Emiratis on the same level, which is something that appeals to the Emiratis. But it also gives the Emiratis alternatives. Uh, the Emiratis are very well integrated with, with Russia as well uh, on, on operations in northern Africa, when you look at Libya, uh, and the funding of the Wagner Group mercenaries, which was done through Abu Dhabi. Um, if you look at Russia's uh, engagement more recently in southern Yemen, again facilitated through the UAE, uh, and obviously engagement in, 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 in Syria, uh, where the Emiratis and the Russians are kind of looking at the issue from from the same angle. So you, you see that the Emiratis have built a, they have hedged their bets internationally in a way that they can also show the Americans a cold shoulder. So the, it seems like they're winning because nobody is confronting them. And it seems like the counter-revolution appears to, uh, at least at the moment, has the upper hand. But I think the cause of Palestine now and the mobilization that we see now is part of the same problem that people addressed a decade ago during the Arab Spring. It's about oppression, it's about social injustice, it's about an authoritarian country when it comes to you know Israel's engagement with Palestinians, especially in Palestine. If you look at the apartheid, uh, apartheid um, state there in, the, in, in Gaza and also in the West Bank, if you look at that, then it becomes quite obvious that the cause that people are fighting uh, for in Palestine is the same cause that most Arabs were fighting for uh, during the Arab Spring. And most people are realizing and should be realizing now that the UAE are on the opposite side of that particular struggle. They are trying to to kind of uh, remove the voice of of those uh, people who are now uh, going onto the street. They're trying to demobilize where they can uh, and throw money at it. And when money doesn't and accommodation doesn't work, they use repression and they're using repression at home, obviously. But they're exporting technology that allow, allows other authoritarians, in particular Sisi, the Egyptians have learned quite a lot from the Emiratis, to use technology to suppress public opinion, to suppress um, how people can communicate to one another, uh, and which in which what I call is authoritarian authoritarianism 2.0. It's it's on a new level. So yes, it it looks like the ball is at the moment in the Emirati park, if you will. Do you think though that the current situation the Palestine-Israel situation, the current war that's going on, the support that's being uh, reflected in in the Arab street, is that going to play against this grand strategy that the Emiratis have? Could this be the one that changes the narrative? I think it, it could. It could be. It depends on how long this this mobilization can be sustained. You know, we all expect a ceasefire to be signed in the next forty-eight hours, um, which means the war in Gaza comes to an end. And I think what Hamas did was really sh shooting the Palestinian cause into the, in, in the foot uh, because it has undermined the, the natural mobilization, the, the peaceful mobilization that happened in East Jerusalem over, you know, the vi police violence against uh, warshippers and protesters there. And obviously the storming of Al-Aqsa Mosque and ethnic cleansing that's going on, uh, has been going on. And I think it's important that we go back to this because that's the root cause. Uh, what happened in Gaza was a distraction. It was. It's an operational problem that you know Israel has been dealing with in an in an obviously a catastrophic manner uh, for Palestinians in Gaza. But the 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 underlying root cause of all of this is the ongoing plight of Palestinians and the lack of uh, livelihood, uh, their their alienation because they um they, because they're living in a regime that doesn't cater to them, ethnic cleansing, the the inability uh, to move freely around in their own country. All these issues persist. 
And that mobilization that is happening needs to happen not for Gaza, but it has to happen for that sort of political cause inside of Israel, inside of Palestine. And I think if that can be sustained even after the, the, the Gaza war, um, then I think this could be especially with the support from, from outside. And I feel like academia, I'm looking at uh, commentators, analysts have always been more or less on the fence on this issue, have now clearly uh, spoken out in the, in, in, in the name of Palestine. Uh, I think if that can be sustained, it could be a game changer in a way of how people look at oppression in the Arab world. And I think Black Lives Matter and, and Me Too, these movements that have uh, really been transformational in the Western world over the last couple of years, th this has kind of made people more aware of what's going on in the world. And I think that kind of helps because the Palestinian cause very much fits into that. People are tired of oppression. They're tired of of kind of glossing over uh, of structural violence, political violence uh, against any minority. And what's happening in Israel is just the, the very, um, you know, embodiment of all that uh, injustice. I think this mobilization, if it can be sustained, would be something that is a strategic threat to um, the, the war over narratives that the Emirates are leading. Palestinian lives matter. Yes. Joe Biden, has he played a weak hand? Has he done enough? Is there more that he could and should be doing? I think many people have been very disappointed with the response by, by Joe Biden uh, because they expected after Trump to have a, a Democrat in power who would probably follow on from Obama's uh, more uh, neutral, more balanced approach to the Arab-Israeli conflict. And uh, obviously that was never going to be the case because Biden uh, is not uh, Obama. And Biden has, if you look at his history, has always very, very firmly stood with Israel on every occasion. Um, and I don't think it is that surprising that he hasn't done more because he does not believe in, uh, I think there's almost a religious element to him believing that Israel not only has a right to exist, but that Israel has a right to do whatever it takes to secure its um, uh, its citizens. And uh, what I find surprising, uh, surprising is how long it took him to actually mention the word ceasefire. I think he's following on from what we've seen in, in the Obama era, uh, Trump era, which is a, a physical withdrawal of the United States from, from that part of the world. But now we also see with Biden a diplomatic withdrawal uh, from, from particularly that conflict of saying, okay, it's no longer the, the primary focus of my, of my tenure. Um, you know, I, I, I do what I can to help. But I feel like the U.S. role this time around is very similar to the role that we've seen from being played by the EU, for example, which is, you know, half-hearted, uh, a lot of warm words, um, but no action whatsoever, no pressure, no leverage. And the Americans do have leverage, unlike the uh, Europeans. Um, there is really no one who's taking on that cause and giving the Israelis a carte blanche uh, to do whatever they want. And that is something very, very scary, with the only hope being that Americans as well, as well as American Jews, mobilizing for the cause of Palestine, because they're realizing that there is an immense injustice being done through taxpayers' money, U.S. taxpayers' money, uh, with uh, nearly $4 billion being invested or being aided to Israel every year, helping setting up and, 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 and kind of defending that regime that, that exists there. Yeah, and and as you said, the uh, creation of an apartheid state for the for the Palestinians, uh, and and our own government very much on the sidelines in this in this particular version of the of the war that that has carried on for such a long time. Really, um, sometimes hot, sometimes cold, but always there. I wanted to ask you though about uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, extremely ambitious. Um, 
he clearly wants to move into that role of leader of the Arab world, a small state, but a kind of reverse takeover and pushing aside even the Saudis. Mm. How big is his ambition and how close do you think he is to achieving it? Mohammed Zad is a very interesting character, and I think any any biography that's out there should be should be read, but needs to be expanded because he's he's kind of a, a shadow person. He's someone who lives in the shadows, exists in the shadows. He doesn't travel much. He's you know unlike even you know MBZ, uh, sorry MBS Mohammed bin Salman, the Prime Minister of Saudi, he's not omnipresent. He's not there all the time. He you know he's he's very much behind the scenes, but he is kind of the the Svengali who's pulling all this, the strings in the background. Um, to become a leader of the Arab world, you need to be more um, engaging, more outreach, you know, more investing more into outreach, which uh, the which MBZ doesn't do. MBZ is is not someone who who himself personally, although he wants to, and he very much monopolizes power in his hands as well as now at the moment we see a lot of delegation of power already to the second generation to his children, especially Khalid bin Mohammed bin Zayed. Um, so if, if we if we look at that that kind of nucleus of the Al Nahyan that are leading Abu Dhabi, they are still trying to operate in the shadows, and the UAE are trying to operate in the shadow. They are trying to lead stealth wars because they they are so fearful of the reputational risks, um, and they they love to control without actually being in the limelight, uh, and that makes it very difficult to to kind of present yourself as as the leader of the Arab world. That doesn't mean, however, that they're not the leader of the Arab world uh, in the way of saying that, you know, they control the Middle East and they have the means available, levers of power available to them to do so that other countries in the region don't have. And if you look at conventionally, Saudi Arabia, conventionally speaking, is the greater power in terms of, you know, a, a GDP. If you look at population, the military, how much they spend on the military. But it's not about this. It's about how you use that power. And I think the UAE have realized that smart power also means operating below the threshold of war, delegating where you can to surrogates of technological nature as well as human surrogates uh, like militias, mercenaries, local actors that you empower. Uh, and they've done this in a, in a very smart way while, while people weren't looking, where people weren't watching. And they've used, for example, Saudi Arabia very much as a shield, even in Yemen, as you know, most of the criticism of the last couple of years over the Qatar crisis, over the Yemen war, this criticism didn't didn't talk about the UAE, and if they mentioned the UAE, it was very much on the on the sidelines. The key focus has always been on Saudi Arabia, also because Saudi Arabia was always there. It was you know MBS was trying to get that limelight, he was trying to get that attention. MBZ is not that guy. MBZ didn't do a US tour trying to show himself um, uh, as the new leader of the Arab world, and I think but that with this comes a particular risk. Because MBZ is acquiring all that power, they're becoming the people who are dominating in, and are at least influencing every single conflict in the Arab world, but doing so without getting the, the, the attention that it deserves. And I'm, I'm talking about negative attention because they commit war crimes, um, they've been involved in mercenarism, as I already said, they've been ru running torture camps, they've been undermining UN processes in Somalia, in Libya, uh, in Yemen. Um, their divide and rule approach in Yemen and Libya is basically leading to a break uh, to 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 you know leading both of these countries to a breaking point. These are all issues that I think need need to be focused upon. But you know most of the negative attention to the Gulf or to the Arab world has been directed towards um, towards Saudi Arabia uh, and the UAE have been working very much in the shadows. Mm, yes, he's he's played that very very effectively, and as you say, worked worked in the shadows and really feels emboldened to, uh, as you say, turn his back, little Sparta, turning 
it's back on America and and working closely with China, with Russia, with India. Uh, yeah, uh, certainly a, a man to be watched much more closely. Andres, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Very good conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Dr. Andreas Krieg, a lecturer on security studies at King's College London and editor of Divided Gulf, published by Palgrave in 2019. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we are now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.